And welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. Thanks for joining me for the 26th episode of the show, and to once again cast a new guest off to a virtual deserted island, where they can only play eight games for the rest of their life. My guest this week to be cast off and have the tough choice of choosing eight games is one of the most prolific and prominent games writers right now. He originally started out as a writer for Wired.com, where for two years he covered the video game content side for the tech outlet. But in February 2012, it was announced he was the brand new news editor for Kotaku.com. Since then, he has become one of the most talked about writers in the industry, having written some incredibly important and fantastically investigated stories from topics such as crunch in video games, the making of Destiny, and the secrets behind Blizzard's cancelled MMO, Titan. He's even so popular and powerful that he's to blame for the No Man's Sky being delayed into <laughs> August, according to some very clever people on the internet. Of, of course. My guest today is the JRPG defender himself, Mr. Jason Schreier. Schreier, Hello, Jason. Schreier. Schreier. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was trying for five minutes. I was trying for five <laughs> minutes to try and nail that, and I went with it and got it wrong. It's so all I good. Thanks, Liam. I, I feel like I can't <laughs> live up to that description. I mean, like, it's all downhill from here after that, <laughs> that bio. <laughs> so, Jason, yes, you are here once again to for me to cast you off to a deserted island. You have chosen eight games today. Um, but first... Let's talk a little bit about you then. So, first of all, how are you doing today? I am doing okay. It's uh, uh, bright and early here in New York City. Everyone is playing Pokemon. I just passed. Uh, I just noticed this for the first time on my way to work. There's a uh, this famous restaurant called Coffee Shop in Union Square, and it's been around for a long time. It's really well known. A lot of people have gone there. Um, and right now, they have a giant billboard in front saying, "This is a poker stop. <laughs> Come on in." <laughs> so. Well, unfortunately, I live in Japan, so we still still don't have pokemon go it's almost like it's it's become routine to wake up in the morning and open uh i have i have the app i've downloaded it weeks ago now it seems from the australian store Uh and and now it's just becoming a routine of waking up and checking if there is anything appearing realizing there isn't reading (laughs) any news about it and then crying because still it's not out but i feel like you guys deserve that because japan has gotten so many games before the u.s (laughs) and so many games that didn't even come out in the u.s or in europe that like once in a while we should get one first that's true that's true i understand that but when it comes obviously there's this whole sort of mcdonald's story that's coming out now with mcdonald's being yeah. Uh, setting up like a promotion for like sponsored poker stops or poker gyms for each McDonald's, but uh, to delay a Pokemon game <laughs> in Japan seems really strange. It and is, yeah. 
it's frustrating seeing everyone from back in the UK and the US being able to play it and catching all these awesome Pokemon. Mm-hmm. That's saying. Yeah, it's a bummer. I feel your pain. <laughs> but yes, so we are here today. Uh, spoilers for anyone listening, Pokemon Go is not on Jason's list. So <laughs> <laughs> we've got the Pokemon talk out of the way. Jason, so first of all, I think we should talk about how you got into uh, video games writing and sort of what you've been doing since you've been at Kotaku, because you, you are the news editor, but you also do reviews and you write these incredible feature stories as well that must take months and months of research and contacting people to put together. Sure. Well, uh, to give you the quick answer to how I got into video games, I've always wanted to be a writer. So um, I was on my high school newspaper, college newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I graduated, I was doing some freelance work actually outside of games, which I would recommend to anyone who wants to be a games writer, um, just because you learn so much about reporting and, and um, the basic like shoe leather stuff and interviewing people, et cetera. Uh, and um, I did a lot of stuff like in for local local websites and papers and so forth about like okay. local government and like zoning board meetings and you don't you don't know boredom <laughs> until you've gone and covered a zoning board meeting in your local uh, <laughs> your local town um and then i i wound up switching like pivoting course and being like hey what do i really want to write about i kind of like video games maybe i'll try doing that um (laughs) and things kind of fell into place from there i got lucky enough to get a job writing for chris kohler over at wired who kind of gave me my big break um but i had been freelancing for a little while before that and during that period uh for various websites doing reviews and features and stuff like that uh, and then um, at one point, I think, so Steven Totillo was about to take over Kotaku because Brian Crescente was leaving in the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And Steven emailed me and was like, hey, let's grab drinks. And so I went and grabbed drink with, drinks with him. And he told me he was taking over and he wanted to hire me. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll come aboard. Um, and then I have been at Kotaku since then. It's been a ride. <laughs> it's been quite a ride. Um, working at Kotaku is, <laughs> is, is pretty wild for various reasons. But as far as um, what I actually do, so yeah, it's a we're such a lean staff. You might not realize this, but we're only uh, 11 full-time people. Um, so and you're all sort of variously spread out as well. Yes, yes, like yes. There are yes. a few of you, I think, at the Gorka office, like you and Stephen, yes. and then some of you are spread out as well. Yes, correct. Um, so uh, we have a yeah, we have someone in Australia, we have someone in Japan. So as far as like the daytime hours, we only have like five or six really full time people. Some of them are just editors who don't write. Um, I do a mix of editing and writing. But the point is, because we're so lean, everyone has to do everything. So pretty much everyone on the staff is doing some combination of news reviews, uh, doing going out and talking to people. Uh, uh, like nose on the ground reporting uh except like that sort of uh uh routine where it's like everyone has to we can't really divvy it up in terms of sections or responsibilities because we all have to chip in and do a little bit of everything so like e3 conferences everyone is watching them and helping out with like news breakout stories and and watching the trailers and putting them on the site um and that sort of thing so uh, that is why, even though my title is news editor, I'm pretty much doing everything. I'm reviewing a lot of games, um, playing a lot of games and writing about them, uh, doing uh, feature stories and uh, even video stuff once in a while. I was going to say, how do you balance all of this? Um, like news writers uh, in video games, surprisingly, there is an abundance of news almost every day. There seems to be something happening 
these days daily. Um, how do you balance that with, uh, obviously, I've got this, I've got like, say you just you just reviewed I Am Setsuna, didn't you, uh, mm-hmm. recently. So, you know, that's like a pretty big JRPG. I know it's a bit shorter than normal JRPGs, but for example, a JRPG for review, you've got like a 40-hour JRPG to do, or you've got your daily news writing, but then you're also like doing this investigative story in like video game crunch and you're speaking to all these people how do you balance all this how do you <laughs> I'm also going? I'm also writing a book right now so <laughs> Oh yes you have a book coming out next year don't you I, it's it's a, a challenge I work a lot of hours um yeah well so with a review game so with something like Setsuna that actually wasn't so bad because it was fairly short and I was able to crank through it um I think I played the bulk of it on Friday throughout the day and at night and then on Sunday um, what we're able to do some of the time is if we're working on a game, we can work from home and play it like during during the day um, while we're also doing posts. Once in a while, uh, we'll get we'll take review days where someone just totally takes off and doesn't focus on anything except for the game. Like I imagine when Final Fantasy 15 comes out and I have to review <laughs> that, I will have to take at least a couple of uh, review days for that where I'm just playing nothing but that game um, the entire day. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work, uh, uh, especially when you have to be doing a lot of reporting and calling people and getting on the phone uh, at strange hours because I'm on the East Coast of the States uh, and a lot of the people that we have to work with are on the West Coast. So often there okay. will be late night phone calls for us um, that are just <laughs> like afternoon phone calls for them. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's, it's definitely rewarding and valuable and it's not like it doesn't have the same feel as I know you worked for Rockstar. (laughs) I imagine you have some stories out of there, but it doesn't have the same feel of like a video game company's crunch because it doesn't, it it doesn't, first of all, I don't feel like I have to do it. I feel like whenever I put in extra hours, I'm kind of, uh, uh, doing it because I want to. And second of all, it has that kind of immediate gratification of when I write something and publish it it has my name on it and people will see it and read it and and yeah know that I created it um as opposed to that kind of like <laughs> like long work two hours years, for yeah, yeah for two a years car wheel non-stop waiting for the game to be released yes. just for that yes yeah <laughs> Yeah, so it's not so bad. Uh, I I love working at Kotaku. Um, I love our team and the people I work alongside, and I think we've done some really interesting stuff. It's it's definitely wild. It's definitely a, a roller coaster ride with lots of ups and downs along the way, but but it's fun. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, obviously, Kotaku has been this almost hotly contested thing for many many years now. Obviously, starting out as a blog and now being one of the most visited video game based websites in the world. Um, what was it kind of like coming into Kotaku, obviously with the reputation Kotaku had for being this huge site, but also being this thing that some people didn't like and that kind of thing? Um, I definitely thought about it and talked about it with some people before I joined Kotaku and I talked to Steven. I think ultimately it came down to me trusting uh, Steven Totello's vision and his reporting. And I had known him. Uh, I had followed his work for a while, even before I met up with him and he wanted me to join. So I knew that he was this fantastic reporter and editor um, and people who have worked with him and raved about him. I knew a couple of people who also worked at Kotaku uh, even before I started who raved about Steven and I think that was a big part of it I think the people you work with are more important than anything when it comes to pretty much any job Um, yeah 
and especially having a, a good boss makes all the difference in the world, no matter what kind of job <laughs> you have. Um, and still, I mean, I still feel that way. Like I would follow Steven anywhere. Uh, he's fantastic editor and leader of the team. Um, and I think that's what really makes Kotaku Kotaku, uh, and has really, and, and I've watched his, the site has changed a lot, even not only since he's taken over, but even just like on a year to year basis, we've iterated so much and done so many things so much differently, um, on a regular, uh, uh, like year to year basis, as I said, that, uh, I, any concerns that I might have had for various reasons are, uh, are were were not uh, were not super well founded because uh, I the any issues that I might have had with Kotaku and I definitely I was uh, I had a couple of concerns about like just the way that they do things sometimes or like sensationalized headlines um, a lot of that stuff has either been changed or evolved or. Uh, uh, iterated on in some good ways or it's become stuff that I understand more like a lot of people talk about like oh my god Kotaku has clickbait headlines whatever but <laughs> there's actually a lot of art to a headline and there's a lot of uh, interesting craft that goes into making a headline that a is appealing to people and makes people want to read a story without being misleading and feeling like you have to click it in order to know what they're talking about, which is a lot more of like the clickbait sort of thing. And I think yeah. that that Kotaku has traditionally tried to straddle that line and been well, well, traditional before like uh, in the in Kotaku of like seven, eight years ago, it might have skewed more towards like the misleading-ish headlines or like headlines that aren't really clear. Um, but I think these days we work very hard to make sure that a Kotaku headline is, is grabby and makes you want to click on it, but doesn't try to lure you in with false promises or like questions that we don't know the answer to and that sort of thing that is what actual clickbait is i think people use the word clickbait <laughs> to just mean whatever they disagree with uh, yeah it's, it's sort of becoming this just synonymous word with i don't like this this seems to i don't know pulling for attention yeah it's clickbait it's clickbait it's not yeah. Like yeah 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 and it's too bad because it kind of diminishes the term and like let's sites get away with actual clickbait which is like like uh, uh there's one famous example i keep coming back to so when we do if we at kotaku do a post about a release date let's say in our headline we would say uh i don't know let's say half-life 3 is coming out in august uh by the way listeners half-life 3 is not coming out in august um <laughs> so we so let's say valve announced that right um yeah so i think so at kotaku we would say like holy shit, Half-Life 3 is coming out in August. That might be yeah. our headline, literally. Holy shit, Half-Life 3 is coming yeah. out in August. Um, I think <laughs> the more clickbait version of this, and this is something that I know a lot of sites actually do, would be Half-Life 3 gets a release date. And it's like you have to click on the story in order to get that pivotal piece of information. But we don't okay. really believe in that. Like, we want you we want Kotaku readers to be clicking on our stories because they're interesting and worth reading, not because they have to get this piece of information just by clicking the story. Like that yeah. to me seems like a failing business model and something that people will, that will make people avoid your site. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very interesting. Cause I remember I've been reading Kotaku for many, many years and I, I, I like the, I've always liked the format of Kotaku in terms of being able to, just sort of scroll, continually scrolling through, just seeing pieces of text constantly. Mm -hmm. Like many other sites sort of lay everything out in almost like a tile format. 
Mm-hmm. And what I've always sort of liked about Kotaku is there's text there for me to read, and the headlines are always kind of like they're always interesting in a way of even news stories have maybe like a, st- a story to them, not almost not just like information but also kind of like a story as well like if you're saying like final fantasy 15 is going to blah 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 do something and then it's kind of like oh we sort of expect it to do this or mm-hmm. th- this looks interesting to us it's, it's kind of almost sometimes a little personal twist on it which i which i've always sort of enjoyed mm-hmm. um yeah that's something we definitely go for is is being less dry than uh your typical like like news website we want to have some personality in there and make it clear that all the writers of our site have opinions and perspectives on things and interesting takes and i think if you if you want like a drier like this is totally objective uh sort of approach then kotaku is not the site for you (laughs) which has got you in trouble quite a few times with many different forums and all that sort of stuff but we're here to sort of talk positively today and we're we're going to talk about games that you have chosen uh for the love of and also for being on the deserted island i remember you you messaged me you were like are these games that mean the most to me or are they like for the deserted island do i want to play them for a long time so your list is really intriguing to me like it's a good balance of the two i think yeah, that's what I was going for. I was I was going for games that are A in my top games of all time, but B are like a mixture of different genres and series. Like I could have just picked all JRPGs, but that wouldn't have been as interesting. <laughs> you are a uh, well-known defender of the JRPG genre, which I've always very much enjoyed as a defender of JRPGs as well. So I'm looking forward to talking about the first game uh, that you've chosen today. So sure. why don't we listen to some music and dive straight into it? Jason, the first game that you've chosen today is a game developed by Konami. Uh, back in the, let's, I think it's fair to say the good old days of Konami. <laughs> the pre-Pachinko the, the, days. The, tra- <laughs> the pre-Pachinko uh, days, indeed. Uh, the pre-Kojima the Kojima days as well, sort of the good heights of Konami. Back uh-huh. in the, uh, uh, the sort of late 90s. This is a game that released originally in Japan in uh, December of 1998. Uh, it released a little later in December 1999 for North America, but then it took almost two years for the game to come out in Europe, uh, coming out in 2000. It's directed by Yoshitaka Muriyama, 
very great director. It's a role-playing game that you've spoken about a lot in Kotaku as well, especially mm-hmm. when it got re-released uh, for the PlayStation Vita and the PlayStation 3. It's Suikoden 2. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Suikoden 2, yeah, that's a, that's okay. what I say as well. I, <laughs> I like to think that I've convinced um, many, many people to play that game uh, uh, with all the, the evangelizing I do over it. <laughs> um, it's funny because uh, originally when I ever play and I spoke to British people about it, uh, Suikoden makes a lot of sense, but having lived in Japan for a while now and breaking it down to Suikoden, like it would mm-hmm. be the Japanese characters, that makes a lot of sense now to me. Mm. So I am a I am a convert to the Suikoden pronunciation. But yes, th- this is the first game on your list. And I, I actually I, think I, the name might be one of the reasons that it didn't have as much widespread appeal as it could. Like... Uh, it's such a perfect series, com- combining Game of Thrones and Pokemon in this way that should be like massively appealing. <laughs> but because it has this weird like Japanese name that nobody really and nobody outside of Japan really understands, I yeah. don't think it had the global appeal that it should have. Its full Japanese is Genso uh, Suikoden right. Su. So yeah. that's a, that's even a little more Japanese, but they've sort of scaled it back to be Suikoden. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you have chosen Suikoden. I knew, I knew this game was going to be on your list. <laughs> yep. So I'm really excited to talk about it. It's such a superb game and a game I've recently, uh, I played maybe about 20 hours of it again recently. I played it a long time ago, but thanks to the the ability to play it on my PlayStation Vita, I've been playing it again like Christmas time last year. So mm-hmm. it's fresh in my mind. So Jason, please tell me why the first game on your list today is Suiyoka Den 2. Um. I, so Suikoden 2 is is my favorite game of all time. I think it's one of the best games ever made, if not the best game ever made, because it uh, it combines so many so many great things from characters, music, um, story. It's definitely one of the most evocative stories in video games. Um, the core concept for those of you who haven't heard of it is that you play as this boy who's kind of this uh, who is this uh, uh, war orphan. Um, who finds his way, tr- like he finds his way, he stumbles into this political conflict where he's trapped between two sides of this war and has to pick a side um, and winds up uh, <laughs> finding his way into this position of leader of an army and uh, <laughs> has to run his own castle and recruit his own soldiers. And um, there's a lot more to it that I won't really get into, but basically it's a story of political intrigue and fantasy. Um, Game of Thrones meets Pokemon is the best way to describe it because in addition <laughs> to this epic Game of Thrones style uh, narrative, there's also this gameplay mechanic where you have to go around the world and recruit people and anyone who you meet who has a face can be recruited and you kind of have to figure out as you're playing, it's kind of this optional thing. Um you have to figure out how to recruit those people and what to do and whether you have to go on these side quests or like bring them things and sometimes they give you clues sometimes they don't sometimes you have to consult a walkthrough in order to do it (laughs) um but yeah it has this real like uh poignancy throughout the game both in the gameplay and in the story that is just really appealing and it creates these vivid scenes with these characters who are just uh uh really detailed and interesting in a lot of ways um there's this fantastic relationship between the hero and his uh best friend slash rival and his sister and the three of them have all these interesting dynamics that play in all sorts of ways throughout the game um 
it's it's impossible to really talk about the appeal of it and the story without spoiling things. And I don't want to do that in case people are listening who haven't played it and might be curious about yeah. it. Yeah, um, I think usually spoilers are okay on this show because for obvious reasons you need to describe what you like it. But whereas I think although Suikoden is such a superb JRPG and RPG in general one of its strongest probably the most strong point about it is its story so yeah. and with it being so readily available now on the playstation 3 and the playstation vita there really is and it's really cheap as well there really isn't any reason not to play it <laughs> i'll spoil the other games but this one this one will keep uh, <laughs> close to the chest um but basically i mean if you like it's just this this incredible story about people and their relationships and and the one downside is that the localization is really awful and some of the there are a lot of translation mistakes and weird quirks um in the game that that you have to kind of deal with as you're playing but <laughs> even besides that it tells this like phenomenal story that that you pretty much have to uh, discover for yourself and then there are all sorts of other appealing things like getting to build your own castle and there are a lot of mini games and uh, you get to explore a lot of interesting locations and meet a lot of interesting people and see all these interesting themes explored like uh, uh, racial politics and uh, poverty and uh, uh, academic life there's a, a, this great section where you have to go and infiltrate a school and pretend to be a student for a while um, and yeah, it's uh, just really interesting and, and uh, explores a lot of strong ideas. And by the way, if you're playing it for the first time or you're interested in playing it for the first time, I would recommend playing Suikoden 1, the first Suikoden, which is also on PS3 and Vita. I would play that first and then do Suikoden 2, um, unless you really don't have time, in which case you can just jump to Suikoden 2, but it's yeah. way more powerful if you play the first one first. There are some reoccurring characters from yes. Suikoden that are in, are quite important in Suikoden too, but it has its own story and you can experience that. One of the most amazing things to me about Suikoden is that a lot of JRPGs and a lot of RPGs in general focus on the the obviously main character and his maybe his story and his world. Whereas the special thing about Suikoden too is that it's so grand in scale. It's they have it has all these characters and it just spans so many areas and so many regions mm -hmm. with and it has like what is it three different battle systems as well yeah there's uh, a regular kind of turn-based traditional battle system there's uh, a one-on-one -on -one duels which is this rock paper uh, scissors style yeah combat and then uh, there are army battles which are almost uh, fire emblem-esque uh, yeah of like definitely a, fire. <laughs> yeah. a watered down version of fire emblem so it's like this RPG that just and it was a PlayStation RPG as well. It's not even a PlayStation 2 RPG or anything. It just had so much scale to it. And yep. it's very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty long. Actually, I don't know. I feel like you can beat it in, in less than 20 hours. I mean, there's one side quest that you get if you beat the game or, like, get to the final dungeon in, in like, I think it's 12 hours, 15 hours, something like that. So okay. it doesn't have to be that long. It, it's added. There's a lot of added length in uh, the whole character recruitment side quest stuff because you yeah. can spend a lot of time just figuring out how to recruit people. Um, so that can kind of inflate the length a little bit but just the main story itself isn't that long i would say um yeah so for anyone who doesn't know in suikoden and 2 you, you can recruit characters but you may be thinking oh yeah there's probably 10 to 20 characters you can recruit <laughs> uh no there is 108 characters <laughs> there are 108 yep. different characters that all have 
storylines and dialogue and things you need to do for them. Really, there are that. more than that because you can actually get yeah. a few uh, squirrels that are like additional party members. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are a lot of characters. There are a lot of characters. So, uh, Jason, uh, what? who is your favorite then that you can recruit? What is your favorite character and their story? Maybe you can go a little bit into that. Um, I don't. I've always liked the harmonious stuff. Well, so so one of the things that people should know about Suikoden 2 is that the entire Suikoden series is all set in the same world, unlike, say, Final Fantasy, where it just switches up everything every single time they do a new entry. This is all, yeah. it's more like, like different seasons of a TV show, which is one of the other reasons the Game of Thrones comparison is so apt. Um, so, like, in one... Uh, in the first game, you're in this country called Toran, the Toran Republic, and they all, they always mention this other country called Jousten. And then in the second game, you're in Jousten, and there are a lot of like recurring references, and pretty much everyone you talk to references other ca- countries in some way, um, and it just very much feels like you're playing in this giant uh, full-scale world the entire time. Um, so one of my favorite plots is like the ongoing Harmonia stuff that is explored a little bit in two, and then uh, uh, later on in Suikoden and three, it gets some more detail. Um, the stuff with Luke uh, and Sasarai and those characters has always been really appealing to me. Um, so I, again, I won't get into details in case people uh, <laughs> don't want to be spoiled. So what about the uh, later entries in the series? Um, Suikoden and two is sort of the highlight of the series, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, a lot of people feel that was the best game. Uh, it had a few games on PlayStation Two, uh, like Suikoden three and Suikoden four. Um, have you played those games as well? What, what did you feel about later versions? Uh, well, later entries in the series. Yeah, well, so actually, uh, Suikoden 3, I think, is uh, really interesting. It's It feels kind of clunky in a lot of ways. Um, it, you kind of, you play it and you expect the characters to have voice acting because it feels very cinematic, but the characters don't actually talk, um, which is a little jarring, but it's a really good game. Uh, Suikoden 4 isn't as great. Um, a general consensus of that game is that it's not very good, and I kind of agree with them there. And then Suikoden 5 is actually uh, the one of the best games in the series it's almost as good as Suikoden 2 I would say um but it's much harder to play these days because uh, they haven't re-released it in any way um yeah hopefully they release them all on Steam or something or PS4 but they're sort alas. of slowly getting through them I, I think was it f- was it three they recently released or four yeah um, three they released on PS3 but they haven't okay. released uh, uh any of them on PS4 and only one and two are on Vita Okay. Okay. Um, so there haven't there hasn't been a main series title since Suikoden Five. Do you expect? Well, so there have few... been a couple on handhelds, but those are kind yeah. of like weird spin-offs. But yeah, you I... had the tactics game as well. There was like a Suikoden tactics game. Yeah. So that was based on four, um, and it was it was interesting. I mean, it did some interesting things, but it it's not really as uh, the story isn't as powerful as as the other games. It doesn't really count as a main Suikoden game. And yeah, and then there were a couple of uh, spinoffs called Tear Chris, um, and then there was one that didn't get released in the u.s and yeah it was like a psp game yeah so that i mean that's karma for the whole pokemon go thing (laughs) you guys got that and we didn't but but from what i hear it's not even that good so not the series is basically dead um yeah 
well, you say that, but speaking of Konami, the most recent, well, the most, <laughs> the kind of most recent thing next to that PSP game <laughs> was a Suikoden and Pachinko machine. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, if they can make money off of that, then power to them. But uh, as far as I know, I mean, um, there were news reports uh, at some point a few years ago that they had dismantled their entire Suikoden team and that they just weren't even bothering with RPGs anymore. So... Uh, who knows? I mean, it doesn't even seem like Konami really cares about getting into video games anymore. So they, yeah, it doesn't. It really seems like Konami are really trying to push themselves away from video games in general. Mm-hmm. There is some, uh, you know, pro evolution soccer stuff. Yeah, there are some around, yeah. Metal Gear side, but even like with Phantom Pain, only coming up to being a not even a year old yet and Mel Gear online as well there doesn't seem to be much support for that either mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i just konami yeah <laughs> yeah too bad fading away which is a shame for such a prominent developer for creating such games as sweet code and so jason we've started off strong we've chosen your favorite game as the first game to take with you uh hopefully we can continue yeah, just as strong these so are we're all my listen- favorite games yeah let's go oh through. that's perfect so we're going to listen to some music from this next game okay. and we're going to dive straight into it before we talk about your next game jason which is another superb jrpg and my favorite of the series that it's in uh we're going to talk about the virtual deserted place that you are trapped in um (laughs) so if you haven't listened to the show before i allow you to choose a place from video games for you to be trapped in we want (laughs) we want I i want you to be comfortable i want you to be able to play the games you've chosen so it's up to you to decide where you are going to be trapped there are obviously not going to be any human like NPCs or anyone with that sort of intelligence level shall Uh we say Um, so you can't escape or you can't converse with anyone but if you choose somewhere that has lots of monsters and enemies that could potentially kill you that will happen so you have to choose wisely so for example we had uh adam ovenko uh, gaijin hunter from the monster hunter community last week he chose uh, destiny island from kingdom hearts so <laughs> chilling in a tropical beach doesn't seem so bad playing monster uh-huh. hunter is there anything that comes to your mind um in the world of gaming that you wouldn't mind being trapped in um i don't know well we we could do the island that uh that in the in the there's a deserted island in the next game we're about to talk about that we could do um but that would be kind of depressing that seemed like a really (laughs) a really terrible place to live on um uh can it be like a real world location can it be like dubai i would be okay with uh being trapped in dubai for a while 
So like what? Like the Spec Ops the Line Dubai? <laughs> No, it, has, that, it that, has to be from video games. Oh, so it has to you be have from to sort of games. you have to sort of clutch clutch mm. in some way. Uh, uh, Dubai does feature in Spec Ops the Line, but it's kind of dis- How about <laughs> the Animal Crossing Islands? That that would be fine. The Animal Crossing okay. towns would be fine. Yeah, uh, is there any specific like a... game? No, any of them. They all seem pretty idyllic. <laughs> they seem better than uh than, than most video game locations. I would say. <laughs> well, we'll say we'll say the town of New Leaf, sure. uh, being the most recent in the series. Uh, so we'll say uh, that's where you're trapped, catching butterflies and fishing for <laughs> fish, while you're going to be playing this next JRPG, which okay. is one of my favorite JRPGs of all time. It's my favorite in the series. Uh, it's a game made by Square back when they were Square, uh, directed by Yoshinori Kitese and Hiroyuki Ito, produced by Mr. Sakaguchi-san himself, uh, with you know music from Umatsu-san. Uh, it was produced for the Super Nintendo uh, Entertainment System. It originally released in North America as Final Fantasy III. Uh, uh, many of you will know that. But in Japan, it released as Final Fantasy VI, and it's what it's known as now. It's the game that features the greatest Final Fantasy villain of all time. Jason, you have chosen Final Fantasy VI mm-hmm. to take with you. So please tell me why the second game you're taking today is the best Final Fantasy. Yeah, I've always had an emotional connection to Final Fantasy VI. Um, it wasn't the first Final Fantasy game I played that would be one, um, and it wasn't even the first Final Fantasy that I like really dug into because that would be four or two back then. Um, okay, but it was the first that like uh, I just like. Uh, totally loved and uh, just the characters just spoke to me in a way that no other video game had before Um, and I just grew so attached to every possible aspect of the game from the broken combat system (laughs) to uh, the the uh, flying around on your airship and and recruiting characters in the second half of the game just everything about it really spoke to me I think it's one of those games that really uh blends together so many features in a way that makes it uh, uh, pretty impeccable. Like the, the music, the soundtrack is obviously incredible. Uh, the characters are all fascinating and they each, most of them, uh, I would say 80% of them get really interesting narrative arcs where they change and evolve over the course of the game. Um, they all have interesting mechanics. The combat system is really cool because of that. Um, the animations are great. Like even today, it really holds up really well and looks fantastic yeah. for people. Uh, I, I was actually uh, my colleague Kirk Hamilton. I was at his place in Portland last year and uh, forcing him to play through a bunch of it. We were streaming it for for a couple of days. Um, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I it was did, a lot I of fun. Some of that, yeah. Um, and he so he was playing Final Fantasy VI for the first time ever, um, and I think he still appreciated uh, the the things that it did so right um and also in the way that it feels like uh uh, very handcrafted and very uh interesting uh in how it uh introduces you to new mechanics all the time and uh subverts your expectations in interesting ways and does new things all the time um whether it's splitting the game up into three different parties and making you choose which order to play them all in, uh, all their scenarios in, or destroying the world and and, <laughs> for, and changing and forcing you to go find everyone in your party again. There are a lot of really cool things that it does. Um, and yeah, and Kefka is a big part of the appeal as well. The Absolutely. Best yeah. villain ever, as you mentioned. Um, 
I think the fact that he succeeds and is uh, so yeah. genuinely terrifying is a big part of what makes Final Fantasy VI uh, as good as it is. I don't think... I still struggle today to think of a villain who has put the fear in me as much as Kefka did uh, every time he appeared. Obviously, his infamous laugh, um, mm-hmm. his, his 8-bit, <laughs> oh, his 16-bit laugh, it was so terrifying. Um, so you got into Final Fantasy VI a little later. Which version did you play then? Was this still the Super Nintendo version? Was this like the Game Boy Advance version? No, no, no. I did. I got into it as soon as it came out. Um, oh, okay. okay. I had just played other Final Fantasy games first. A lot of people first, say, okay. uh, actually, I mean, funny enough, so I, I interviewed uh, Hajime Tebada, who's the director of Final Fantasy fifteen, and we were talking about like what makes a Final Fantasy game feel like Final Fantasy, and he told me that he thinks that uh, what Final Fantasy means to people is like based on the first Final Fantasy game they played. And I actually disagree with him there because I feel like the... Or, like, he thought that the best Final Fantasy... People tend to say that their favorite Final Fantasy is the first one they played, which I definitely yeah. disagreed with, because I had played... I disagree with that, too. I disagree with that as well. Actually, I, I don't know... Sorry, I might be misremembering. I don't know if that's... I think he might have said, like, it It depends what Final... Like, not necessarily that the best one is the first one you played, but the, fe- the what you think the feel of Final Fantasy is. Uh, whatever. The, you can look it up on Kotaku for the exact quote. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, I sort of get it. what you mean. Like, a lot of people who whose first Final Fantasy was obviously Final Fantasy VII and the turn right. of PlayStation 1, right. um, especially this sort of generation of people playing games or talking about video games now yeah um so a lot of them obviously are drawn to final fantasy 7 final fantasy 7 was the first i played mm-hmm. but i went back and i played final fantasy 6 and i i you played final fantasy 10 and i would put both of them before final fantasy 7 mm-hmm. yeah, as yeah, yeah. my personal favorites as well so i sort of lean with you that not necessarily the first one you've played is mm-hmm. the one that you think is the best or has the final fantasy feel to you yeah um and yeah I had been I as a kid uh I had played uh when I was really little I played the NES one um we only got one we didn't get two and three obviously uh, and then I uh, Final Fantasy 2 was the one that really first kind of blew my mind and the way it told a story and did what no other video game has done in a lot of ways uh or at the time no video game had ever tried to tell a story like that and and created this like epic like layered narrative in a way that Final Fantasy 2 did but then 3 kind of just like surpassed it in every way from the combat to the characters to um the the atmosphere and the world and the music and it just blew my mind at the time I remember uh uh really like falling in love with all the characters and like I would play games with friends at the time where we would like pretend to be Final Fantasy 6 characters um (laughs) (laughs) there was a lot of uh uh cool stuff back then it was very very appealing I think one of the things that's really appealing to it is uh that it left some stuff to your imagination um like the whole shadow and realm thing uh the subtleties there and even a lot of the animations just like like left your mind to fill in some of the blanks of what characters were doing and how they looked and what they were thinking which was really appealing to me what was it like for you then i haven't really spoken to many people who've played like the first final fantasy kind of around its release um Mm -hmm. What was it like you going from this fantasy, uh, almost medieval Europe type 
game um, that had all these magic and knights and swords type, you know, fantasy setting, obviously, to this, like, second industrial revolution mech machine. And you're like, hey, is this still Final Fantasy? Or were you like, <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is really cool. I didn't even think about that at the time. I, I think, I mean, part of it is, and a lot of people don't talk about this when they're talking about Final Fantasy or don't realize it, is Final Fantasy, all the Final Fantasy games have been very sci-fi heavy. Like, the yeah. original Final Fantasy on NES, you went up to a tower and, like, there were robots everywhere and you were, like, staring off into space and you <laughs> we were basically in this castle and, and there's an enemy called Warmech that's, like, literally a robot who, who fights you <laughs> on, this, on this bridge. Um, and then Final Fantasy... Two, four or two, uh, as I thought it was back then, you fly in a giant space whale to the moon and have the final boss fight, and a lot of the stuff that you do is on the moon. Um, and there's a lot of kind of sci-fi elements there. I mean, you fight in a giant robot. So there's always that kind of tinge of sci-fi um, in Final Fantasy games. And if anything, I thought that Final Fantasy VI was similar in that there was still all this fantasy stuff. Like you, the, one of the first places you go is to this uh, medieval-looking castle. And then it also blends together the sci-fi because this castle turns out has all this engineering uh, uh, behind it and can like dig into the sand somehow. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, it was like the one thing I was that that was interesting about Final Fantasy six or three at the time is that there are no dwarves or elves or any sort of like Tolkienish races yeah. or or thoughts like that. But there's still the fantasy style magic system and uh, other fantasy elements. So I, it never even occurred to me that this was totally different than other Final Fantasy games. I think Final Fantasy seven felt more different, um, but that was for a lot of reasons. Uh, it wasn't just the tech stuff it was also the 3d um the fact that it looks so much different than other final fantasy games but uh six to me i don't know just felt like another final fantasy so obviously final fantasy six was originally released in 1994 mm -hmm. and now we are in uh 2016 looking forward to two months away the release of the 15th entry in the series mm -hmm. the mainline series You've written extensively about Final Fantasy XV, and I know you're very excited towards it. Well, how are you sort of looking from what you've played so far and what you've seen? Are you optimistic about how Final Fantasy XV is going to turn out, considering the long development it's been in and for the series' history? Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I actually think I don't really see it as like a 10-year a development cycle, even though it was announced 10 years ago, because I, yeah. I, my understanding is that when uh, Tabata took over, they kind of rebooted it and changed a lot of things and pretty much started from scratch. Um, but as far as the game itself, uh, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. I like what I've played so far. Um, my biggest concern actually is, well, I have two big concerns. One is that they've kind of <laughs> uh, blown their wads a little bit and shown too much uh, of the game and that okay. not a lot is going to be surprising to us. Um, but I could be totally wrong. I mean, there could be plenty of stuff they haven't shown and it could blow our minds in some interesting ways. Um, my second big concern, and this is probably the most the concern that's most likely to come true is that it's not going to be optimized very well and there are going to be a lot of frame rate issues and camera issues and kind of technical deficiencies that make it feel that, a lot clunkier than it needs than it that be. has been my main issue as well considering the two demos that have been released last year with final fantasy type zero and um the most recent the the, the platinum, child, not yep. just yeah the platinum demo um 
having been a games tester a few years ago mm-hmm. playing those demos was kind of like a nightmare oh, i was no. like oh <laughs> bug oh no dropping frame rate oh no there's bad lard in the distance oh god like it's never ending yeah <laughs> it's yeah, one yeah. of the curses i'll have to live with forever but oh, no. <laughs> those demos <laughs> those demos were I mean, the game feels really nice. Mm-hmm. The, I like the combat. I like um, what I've. I like the characters as well, and I, I. I like the music. I like the world, but as a game itself, playing it and it's, the performance, I am. I am nervous. Mm-hmm. I am nervous, considering how soon the game is. I am very nervous of what the final performance and optimization is going to be like. Very similar to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely a concern, but we'll see. I mean, not too far away now. Um, no. I, I think it could be really good. Uh, I think it'll be very pivotal and important to, to like the future of Square Enix and the future of JRPGs in general. Um, so hopefully it's really good. Hopefully it blows us all away. Fingers crossed. I do hope so, too. Um, this year has been pretty good for JRPGs so far, though. So Yep. I'm not too nervous, depending on how Final Fantasy XV turns out. I'd be nervous for Square, considering mm-hmm. the amount of money that has gone into this game and the marketing. I've heard King. I've heard Kingsglaive is pretty good, though. Yeah, that's so, that's what people are saying. I'm looking forward yeah. to that too. I'm definitely going to check that out when when it's released here. Uh, so uh, hopefully it it does turn out <laughs> good for Square <laughs> Enix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the game pretty much needs to be good for that. Yeah. <laughs> what is it like? Ten million copies? They said they need to sell for the oh, game man. to be a success or something. <laughs> Some stupid number. I mean, yeah, <sighs> I can see that happening too. If it's like Final Fantasy is is pretty damn big. If it's if it's uh, successful enough and word of mouth is really good, I can see them hitting those numbers, but. I don't know. It's in, They need a lot to go right for them. Oh, fingers crossed. Anyway, we're going to move on to your next game now, and we are switching from JRPGs to a third-person action-adventure game. So we're going to listen to some music from this next game, and we're going to talk about it. So the next game on your list, Jason, is not a JRPG. It's not an RPG. It's not from Japan either. It's a game <laughs> developed by Naughty Dog uh, and by the team that made the Uncharted games. It was directed by Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley. It's a game about a little, uh, a very strong-willed little girl and this sort of haunted-by-his-past male action hero <laughs> in a post-apocalyptic world. Mm-hmm. It's The Last of Us. Mm. Jason. Why have you chosen The Last of Us, which is a very sh- standard, short, linear game for a deserted island? Yeah, well, I felt like if I'm going to be sort of like trapped in a deserted island, I have to uh, be 
stuck in a survival game. I have to play a game that that makes me absolutely terrified that zombies are going to come out in the deserted <laughs> island and start attacking me. No, I don't know. I, I felt like I so I wanted a wide array of games that deliver all sorts of like uh, experiences and genres. And The Last of Us stands out to me as um, it's my favorite game uh, of the past, like, I don't know, six, seven years. Um, it was really uh, interesting and well-written and evocative in a lot of ways. And uh, I think it, it worked really well. Um, I could totally see myself playing it uh, uh, multiple times uh, to to experience that story, it, it feels like a good movie or a good book in that way that I would want to keep playing it. Um, and yeah, it, it it really stood out to me as a game that uh, uh, affected me in in some interesting emotional ways. Okay, um, so I will admit here for the loss of probably some portion of my audience, I didn't like The Last of Us. Oh, I didn't. I. I like the Uncharted games. I like the... I don't know. There's something about the Uncharted games and the sort of Indiana Jones feel to them. Mm -hmm. I'm not particularly the biggest fan of the gameplay. I've always been slightly annoyed by Naughty Dog's third-person shooting mechanics. Mm -hmm. Very clunky to me. They've gotten better over time. Yeah, they have. And Uncharted 4 was a huge improvement upon that. But with The Last of Us, I felt like it was... It was Uncharted shooting and all that kind of thing with this really annoying AI who would... uh, The game is trying to tell this very emotional story and this with these incredibly almost uncanny valley cutscenes mm-hmm. that sometimes like the 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 starting scene for the last of us i think is one of the most powerful scenes in video games that you can possibly experience it's in, an incredible bit with joel and his daughter um but from then on you have you know you're looking after ellie and you're trying to keep her safe and all this kind of thing with her being pretty independent of the main character mm-hmm. she's very much kind of able to look after herself but the way video games work unfortunately they're not perfect so for many times when i was playing the last of us ellie would be walking out in front of enemy ai Mm -hmm. and they would just not be noticing her yeah well i mean that's part of what i like about it is that they weren't afraid to to kind of break the the immersion um. for the sake of making a game more fun because i don't think it would have obviously it would not have been a fun game yeah. if you had to worry about her i like. i understand that but unfortunately for a game for me that is trying to drive home this emotion about keeping the girl safe from these people or, mm-hmm. and these these disgustingly horribly looking like zombie infected enemies mm-hmm. um but then when you when you come out of a cutscene and then she's walking in front of enemies and not being noticed and then as soon as you pop out you're like ganged upon by like 50 soldiers or all these horrible looking monsters uh i don't know the it was just almost too much the the emotion was broken too much and I just didn't want to continue playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did finish the game with a friend eventually, but it still didn't take away from that. I don't know. I had like a distaste for just what was being broken continually throughout the game. Sure. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, for me, the writing and the way that 
it uh, evoked all these emotions and uh, the subtleties of it were good enough to make up for any sort of shortcomings in that department. I, I didn't okay. really mind seeing Ellie running around. Um, I didn't feel like it happened that much that she would run in front of enemies most of the time, uh, at least while I was playing. She was kind of hiding and crouching behind cover with me. Um, so yeah, I didn't really care f- about that that much. Um, and for, well, for me, what was really cool about The Last of Us is the way that it doesn't, it's not overwritten and the characters don't always say uh, how they're actually feeling and, and they talk like real people talk, which to me yeah. is the hallmark of good writing and it's something that you usually don't see in video games. Usually in video games, people just are saying exactly how they feel at all times um, <laughs> because that's the only way that makes makes them, I don't know, that's the way the video game writers work for various reasons. Random video games is hard, don't get me wrong. Um, but The Last of Us, I think, just like excels in, in that way uh, of... And part of it is the way that the motion capture and the production values and the way everything looks. Um, but the writing is is the main reason I like it so much is just that it feels, even though it's in this crazy uh, post-apocalyptic environment where everything is turned to shit because of viruses and it's very sci-fi, um, it feels very <laughs> human in a way that a lot of games don't. And that's to me, is the big thing that makes all the difference. Well, it sort of explores like the human condition and mm-hmm. the sort of... Uh, the resorts that people will go to in these very terrible situations and how even in the beginning, Joel sort of is this sort of, (laughs) he's lived through this for quite a while. Yeah. He's been surviving on a day-to-day basis. And then he all of a sudden has to look after this little girl, which Mm -hmm. I imagine 20 years ago, he'd be very willing to do and very humanly drawn to looking after or nurturing something like a, a a smaller child mm-hmm. whereas in this world when he first gets it it's a job mm-hmm. he doesn't want to do it he doesn't particularly care and it is this almost exploration of the human condition and like characterization of people in these desperate situations yeah and i think the way that it approaches that is really cool and that's a big highlight of it like in a lesser game they might have a scene where joel is like wow you really remind me of my daughter and and they (laughs) they like do this like whole ham-fisted thing where it's like an emotional climax but in the last of it's it's a lot more subtle and a lot it feels a lot more human um and that to me is is one of the reasons that i love that game so much and and think it works so well as like an example of what video game stories can do um and I think that it wouldn't be nearly as effective if that was a movie or something like that. I think it's one of those stories that that only video games could tell really effectively. One of those where you have to experience being the character and spending a lot more than two hours yeah, and with the characters like, to like get to doing know Doing the whole survival thing and, and getting to play as Ellie in that one sequence and, and uh, uh, seeing how she's evolved and how she her, her perspectives on things have changed. And yeah, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of depth. Um, there that is only possible because you're playing these characters and surviving and putting bricks together to smash people and <laughs> um, and, and finding ways to uh, uh, make your way through this crazy world. Something I've spoken in the past about to different people and asked how people feel in terms of storytelling in video games because this is always a sort of contested uh, opinion people have opinions about games like The Last of Us and being these sort of cinematic, almost movie like experiences that tell a story. And then you have games like Sweet Coden, which is like a very long RPG focused on its game mechanics, but with a really like impactful story. Mm-hmm. I've always felt I've always leaned towards the I don't know the almost uh, 
sentimental value means a lot more to me than the instant impact. Like, the longer I spend with a character, the more I care. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of compare someone play- who, as someone who plays JRPGs, to a game like The Last of Us in terms of... Maybe a JRPG doesn't have as good a story as The Last of Us, but the time that you spend with those characters is a very long time. So it's almost more emotionally impactful Mm -hmm. if something happens to them, say, 60 hours into a game, compared to like The Last of Us where you play like 15 hours and it has all these things happening in it and they are all emotional, but it's a shorter experience. Yeah, that's definitely part of it, and and it's not just the the length, but like how critical they are to your gameplay. So like when you lose Aris in Final Fantasy VII, I think the impact of that will depend on a lot of factors, and one of those factors is did the player use Aris in his or her party <laughs> a lot, and that's kind of a weird thing where it's like if you used her a lot and you're like holy shit, like I'm never getting her back, then that really sucks a lot more than like if you didn't and you don't really care that much. You might care for yeah. for emotional because of her as a character but yeah uh, mechanically it doesn't matter as much and yeah then the, in that case the length is definitely a part of it um but that's a very specific scenario in storytelling uh death and not all stories deal with death uh in in video games so it really depends i mean the the amount of time you spend with a character is definitely a big factor but in some cases if a character is annoying <laughs> the fact that it's a jrpg <laughs> can make it even worse because you're yeah yeah, that's very true. This character that's really annoying. So yeah, it's a it's a delicate balance. How did you feel about the uh, the Last of Us DLC that came after? Did I never play actually that? played it. I, I still okay. have to. It's on my to do list. Oh, I'm well. I, I heard it's really the, good. Have you got the PlayStation Four? Uh, yeah. Like, remaster. Uh, then I think you. Yeah, you still got. You've still got a lovely thing to play. For as much as I had gripes with the Last of Us, that is an excellent piece of DLC, especially mm-hmm. for storytelling. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the plan. It's just I have so much other stuff to play. <laughs> um, it's hard to go back and play old games, especially yeah, with all the all the various things I've been doing and and playing. And I've been getting into Final Fantasy fourteen, which is an MMO and very time consuming. Oh, oh, really? So just now getting into it? Um, uh, I started last year, but I've been kind of okay. gradually playing through it all, and I just got up to the expansion pack content, which I hear okay. is really good. But yeah, that's another. Really that's <laughs> not on my list, so. <laughs> just, just as an aside, I I love Final Fantasy XIV, uh, Realm Reborn. I think it's one of the best MMOs out there. Mm-hmm. Someone has to pick that for Final Games one day. So if you're listening, a potential guest in the future, pick that game so I can talk about it because that is a great. <laughs> that is one of the best Final Fantasies in recent years. Yes, it's superb. Definitely. But we are going to talk about a J- uh, not a JRPG, an RPG now, mm-hmm. a Western RPG. So we're going to listen to some music from this next game, and then we're going to talk about it.
So the next game on your list, Jason, is an RPG. It's a Western RPG that was developed by BioWare and published by Interplay's uh, very uh, famous internal studio, Black Isle Studios. It was distributed, surprisingly, by Wizards of the Coast, which kind of makes sense considering the thematic elements of this game. It's the second in the very famous Baldur's Gate series. Uh, Originally released for PC in September of 2000. It's Baldur's Gate 2. Mm-hmm. Jason, please tell me why Baldur's Gate 2 is the next game you'll be taking with you to the deserted island. Um, Baldur's Gate 2 has always been one of my favorite games. I actually replayed it recently, and it still holds up really well. It's still one of the best RPGs ever made. Um, it's uh, just a fantastic D&D-style role-playing game with uh, lots of clever writing and uh, meaty side quests and a great story and fantastic character design and companions and people you can meet and hang out with and spend time with. Um, and in addition to all of that, the, the game is fantastic on its own, but there's also this great modding scene where people have made all these cool things uh, that you can add on to the game. Uh, okay. Some people have made individual characters that you can add, and they have their own stories, and you can play the game with them. Other people have done like bug fixes and new side quests and all sorts of cool stuff. So it's one of those games that you can really, if you wanted to keep playing Baldur's Gate for <laughs> forever and ever, you could probably <laughs> find enough stuff. Uh, Which is crazy because the game is about 300 hours worth of content as well, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy if you count all the side quests <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then there are, a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to keep replaying it uh, in that... There are different characters and character kits you can play around with, kind of the D&D style character classes and kits. Um, And rolling your own characters can be really fun. And you can either play the game by rolling your own six characters in in the multiplayer mode, uh, or you can roll a single character and then just recruit the companions that the game has. Um, So there are a lot of different possibilities. If you want to play around with the combat and mechanics in some interesting ways, you can do that. Um, and yeah, it's really cool. It tells this fantastic story. It takes you to all these really cool environments and lets you explore them. And there's something really thrilling about getting to explore that isometric RPG top-down style. Um, Pillars of Eternity is a really good uh, yeah. modern recreation of that. And yeah. if you've played Pillars of Eternity and are interested in, in seeing its biggest inspiration, Baldur's Gate 2 is the way to go. Pillars of Eternity is an awesome game. Um Baldur's Gate 2 is this one of those very sort of lost art isometric D&D styles that have these incredible stories and these long like incredible Fellowship of the Ring type quests where mm-hmm. you go on fantastical adventures. Um, what I thought was amazing about Baldur's Gate 2 when I originally played it is that it's one of the um, one of those very rare sequels that almost continues almost instantaneously after the first game yeah 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 yeah. um and the first game so the first game is is very good um i wouldn't i say i think it has a lot of issues and one of those issues is that it starts you off at level one and you kind of like have this character who you watch grow over time but uh, because it follows D and D rules, uh, the <laughs> things are very specific. <laughs> uh, the rules of D and D at level one are very kind of simple and challenging and kind of boring because you don't have that many options and interesting decisions to make, and it's very easy to die. And throughout all of Baldur's Gate one, as you're playing, it's really interesting and fun, and there's a lot to discover and do. But yeah. you also feel like you're kind of on the underpowered and on the verge of dying <laughs> fairly often. Um, it's a, 
it's a difficult game. It is a difficult game, and but it's yeah. not difficult because you have to make a lot of strategic decisions. It's difficult because your character is really underpowered and underleveled <laughs> the whole time. So um, it also has a lot of like interface uh, issues and stuff that gets fixed. There's actually a mod that lets you play all of Baldur's Gate 1 with the Baldur's Gate 2 interface and classes and stuff, and that is what yeah. I would definitely recommend playing. Because um, the second... This Baldur's Gate Two had what was it three new classes? I yeah, think a lot. Like no, barbarian. it's a lot more than that because there are a lot of subclasses okay. as well. Um, oh, okay. Well, okay. and then so the point I was going to make is that since Baldur's Gate Two continues directly after Baldur's Gate One, you actually start at like level seven or eight or something like that, and that's when in D and D. Uh, uh, mechanics that's when things get really interesting because at that point you have your spellcasters have a fair number of spells and your your fighters have a fair number of proficient weapon proficiencies and skills to pick from so you can do a lot more character customization and make a lot more interesting decisions um, as you're progressing through the higher levels than you can in the lower levels so in recent years, we've seen a sort of distinct lack of these D&D isometric titles, very similar to the games that Interplay used to make, like Icewind Dale, Planescape Torment, and all that kind of thing. We have recently seen Pillars of uh, Eternity, which is a superb game, uh, a game that, for anyone who doesn't know, was kickstarted um, by Obsidian, uh, superb, superb RPG that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're going to see maybe more of these, thanks to the sort of success of Pillars of Eternity, and with almost gaming the gaming cycle renewing itself we're seeing a lot of old genres of video games coming back in sort of new iterations isometric pc yeah i think we're already seeing a fair amount of them uh it's not just uh pillars of eternity but also there's divinity original sin which is a really cool uh one there's the torment successor that was also kickstarted and is coming out next year um which is called uh tides of numenera uh, and that game is is looking pretty interesting and has a lot of really okay. talented people working on it. So that should be really cool. Um, and by the way, Planescape Torment is another one that would would be on my list. I decided to go with Baldur's Gate too because I think I like it <laughs> a little bit more than Planescape. But Planescape is definitely up there with that game. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely making a resurgence. It's hard to play on consoles these games. Um, so because you kind of need a mouse and keyboard in order yeah. to really play Div- them effectively. Divinity, Divinity, though, works exceptionally well on the PlayStation That's 4. That's true. That's true. Um, it does. But uh, in general, it's it's it, these tend to be yeah. PC-heavy games. So uh, they're, they have kind of a limited audience from that perspective. But but with games like, like obviously, we've seen this huge rise in MOBAs. Mm-hmm. Um, although they are real-time uh, you know, skill sets and all that kind of thing. You don't pause to do anything, but that isometric mouse and keyboard like movement, especially the mouse to move. Yeah. Maybe there is that sort of audience there. Now yeah, for sure. Because yeah. that is a huge audience. Oh yeah. I th- and I think that we'll see a few more. Um, obviously Obsidian is doing Pillars 2, so that'll be coming in the near future. Or yeah. L- distant future. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I think there's there's definitely a lot of potential out there for that genre. And I think we'll see at least a few more games like that. So when you were younger, um, what sort of were you playing a lot of? Were you, did you have a PC and you were playing a lot of games like Planescape Tournament and Baldur's Gate 2? Or were you mostly predominantly playing like console games and like JRPGs and that sort of stuff? Both. I played everything as a kid. I played video games all the time. I, and I, 
people, since I talk about JRPGs so much, people are always shocked at how much other stuff I played. Like when yeah. I was a kid, I was into all sorts of games. I was into, I played a lot of Diablo 2. I played a lot of like the Blizzard games. I played a lot of uh, RTS games. Um, I played a lot of strategy games, like, uh, and we'll get to one of those in a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes, we will. Yeah. I, I played a lot of uh, PC stuff. I, we always had a, a PC that I could use for playing games, um, as well as the, the consoles that we had, uh, Super Nintendo and uh, PS1. Um and then uh, PS2. I don't think I I got a GameCube a little bit later. Um, but yeah, no, I was always playing playing a giant mixture of things. Um, I always like playing a lot of different RPG or types of RPGs as well as strategy games and um, other genres. I I, I tend I tended to skew mostly towards JRPG or lean more mostly towards RPGs, um, both Japanese and Western. Um, but I was yeah, gonna say, does the does the does the sort of Japanese RPG focus come from like liking anime when you were younger or was it no. just the sort of, was it kind of like medieval stuff is kind of a little old hat with all the Tolkien influence coming from many, many years? No, it wasn't either of those. It was more, I oh. never, I've never watched anime actually. Um, I, I never really cared about it or, or was okay. interested in it. Um, it was more of uh, just growing up playing Final Fantasy. Like the first Final Fantasy is is pretty much the first game I can remember spending a lot of time with, and I can never actually beat it um, because it was really <laughs> tough when I was a kid. And even today, it's really tough. A really yeah, tough game. Yeah, it's still very Final tough. Um, but that was the game that kind of had the most influence on me, and then I would be play other NES stuff like that. Um, Faxanadu, I played a lot, uh, and uh, I have some vivid memories of other RPGs like that. And then on the Super Nintendo, um, I remember my parents got me pretty much all I wanted to play was RPGs. So I got the Final Fantasy games and then Secret of Mana and Illusion of Gaia and Soul Blazer and uh, Super Mario RPG and... uh, uh what else what, what about get? what about dragon quest did you ever get into dragon quest series um not until later because we didn't really get did we even i don't think the u.s got any of the super nintendo ones uh i think it was called dragon warrior no it was but i think i don't think we got the super i think they skipped all the super nintendo ones and went straight to so we oh, got yeah. the first one yeah you're right yeah and then i don't think we got another until i remember i played uh the number three on the Game Boy when it came to that. Um, I think it was Game Boy the, Color, and that was my first yeah, the, Dragon Quest. There was like a huge skip, wasn't there? You're right. Um, it was like one, two, and three. Uh, one, two on, yes. the, uh, on the NES, and then I think like four, five never got released until the DS versions. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, uh no well so yeah four or five ds versions those were the first ones yeah um seven was the big one that uh i really dug into on ps1 because that came here as dragon warrior seven on ps1 and then eight was the one that uh i really enjoyed that was the best one um but yeah are you looking forward to the uh the dragon quest uh was it seven and eight getting released for the 3ds versions They're, they're out now in japan uh I'm have been out for a those. while now. Yes, I'm definitely going to play those. Looks very good. Looks very good. Well, we're going to move on to the next game now, which is a sort of sort of mix up in the list. I think it stands out as the. I think all like it's kind of like the Last of Us. It's kind of like a, a separate thing from the sort of RPG 
uh, theme that you have going through your list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, the only Nintendo game on the list. So we're going to listen to this music from the next game and we're going to talk about it. Cool. <laughs> Next game on your list, Jason, is a Nintendo game. It was uh, directed by Takeshi Tezuka and produced by Shigeru Miyamoto. It was made for the Game Boy and was the first uh, game in the series to feature on a handheld. It's also thought of to be one of the best in the series. A lot of people default to this as one of their favorites in this very famous series. It originally released in Japan uh, in 1993, so very long ago, when I was only three years old, which is incredible because it's a game that's still played today. It released a little later in North America and even later in Europe, as always. It's a game for the Game Boy. It's Link's, uh, It's The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Mm-hmm. Jason, please tell me why Link's Awakening is on your list. So I kind of oscillate between Link's Awakening and Link to the Past as far as my favorite Zelda game. I knew I wanted to get a Zelda game on here because Zelda is one of my favorite series. Uh, okay. And I went with Link to the Past just because at the moment it feels like it's my favorite one. I may change my mind uh, in a couple of months or so. But right now I feel like Link's Awakening is my favorite. Um, something about the top-down formula and the way that it's constructed works really well. Uh, it's kind of a quintessential Zelda game in that you get to go out and solve a lot of interesting puzzles and explore a really interesting world and uh, defeat monsters and collect items. And uh, it's it's really fun fun uh it holds up really well and you can actually get it on the 3ds now for like five bucks i think something like that yeah and so actually let me interject very quickly which version is it you would be taking to the item would it be Link's awakening for the game boy or would it be Link's awakening dx for the game boy color it doesn't matter they're both very similar i mean the dx one just has like a couple of additional features and like a boring extra dungeon um but they're basically (laughs) the same thing i mean i guess the the dx one because that's just more of the same it's the same game with color and photos and stuff um but yeah they're not drastically different um but yeah it holds up really well it's kind of unlike uh modern Zelda games it kind of gets to the point right away and doesn't have isn't over tutorialized there are some places where you might get stuck and that's okay um there's a lot of interesting things going on there's a whole trading mechanic a trading quest that you have to deal with along uh, as you're playing through the entire game um there the the way it's set up is that you can press a or b um and to use one of two items that you can equip at any time and you can equip any items in those A or B slots uh, and uh, you can, you're doing this kind of rotation where you're constantly swapping things out and playing around with different combinations and you can combine items in interesting ways. Um, yeah, it just works really well. It looks really good. It feels really fun to play uh, and it's a really cool game. It's just, it's always funny because I think I feel like really bad for Link in this situation, um, because the uh, I forget what the book's called. The the ah, what's it? Hyrule Historian. 
and the timeline that was released. Uh, they place Link's Awakening after like Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons takes place, mm-hmm. and like Link goes uh, abroad to sort of train or something, and he like washes up on the shore of Koholi Island. It's just everything go ba- goes bad for him <laughs> for him from there on. <laughs> yeah. He like ends up on this random island where he you know he's taken care of by Taran and Marin. Mm-hmm. And Marin's like, "Tell me about the outside world. Tell me about all these things." And he's kind of like, "Just where the hell am I? What the, what the fuck's <laughs> happened?" And yeah. then he has to go on this extended adventure looking for all these instruments and all through all these horrible dungeons full of all these horrible things. Um, it's such a it's such a crazy experience for like uh but it's it's such an amazing game for a handheld and to like thinking about it now i i didn't fully realize when the game was released to think this game was 1993 mm-hmm. thinking about you know games like Baldur's gate 2 and planescape torment that we've just spoke about those games came a lot later in the 90s and we we think about how fully fleshed out those games are for the time thinking about a game like Link's awakening coming out at that time and how incredibly designed the dungeons were how it felt like this big zelda adventure on a game boy Mm -hmm. was truly something very special yeah and it turns out it's all a dream uh like i said we're gonna spoil all the other games except for yeah um so yeah so so that's part of the story is that this island once you uh the the plot is to get all the instruments as you mentioned and then uh use them to kind of wake up the the wind fish that has been dreaming and basically created this world that you're in and then <laughs> you can go back to real life um so yeah it's really cool it's really interesting in a lot of ways there's uh, a jump you can get this item called rocks feather that lets you jump which is uh really important in a zelda game because most zelda games don't let you jump <laughs> so i dig that and uh yeah it's it's a really cool game it's definitely something i would want to play over and over again i think the oracle games are almost just as good and just as interesting uh but link's awakening really stands out to me um as the originator of that formula and a game yeah. that really does it the best so i put this up a few times on this show and for anyone listening probably getting sick of me bringing it up but i'm fascinated by speed running mm-hmm. and with summer games uh done quick just passed one of the ones I always watch is the Link's Awakening speedrun. Yep. I don't know if you've ever caught a speedrun of Link's Awakening. I have. I just watched this one, yeah. Yeah. It, really I find cool. it absolutely fascinating how people can just remember where everything is. And Link's Awakening is even more special because of how almost slow the menus are to yeah. <laughs> load and Yeah, everything. well, the menuing is one of the most fascinating thing in that speedrun is, is that you have to like position everything in very specific yeah. ways and remember where you put everything. <laughs> and I guess these guys play the game so much that they just know it like the back of their hands where yeah, they can exactly. menu super quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously with E3 passing as well, we've finally seen more of the new zelda which is going to be the absolutely exceptionally titled breath of the wild mm-hmm. um were you at e3 and did you get a chance to play breath of the wild i was and i did and it's pretty wild <laughs> um no it's i it's can actually, tell you're a writer <laughs> yeah that's that's my my, cl- my patented wit right there um it's really cool it's it's basically i mean there, there's all sorts of footage online and nothing i did is really different than the footage you can find everywhere but um yeah just the way it combines like far cry and metal gear solid and uh don't starve and minecraft and creates this kind of hodgepodge of ideas it's really cool i'm really looking forward to seeing what they what they do in the final product there it's really different than any zelda game they've done before 
does it still hold that sort of very Zelda feel to it or do, uh, uh, playing it do you sort of feel like wow this is this feels really different from the Zeldas I've played in the past it's hard to know because we didn't get to see any of the dungeons and we didn't really okay. get to the, the, I don't know exactly how the kind of core loop will work with items and collecting new things and solving puzzles and stuff like that like what what one of the things I played was this kind of little shrine they're calling it which is this sort of mini dungeon where you go in and you have to solve like two puzzles and then you get an item yeah. um but uh, we haven't seen any of the full-fledged dungeons yet, which is uh, something that will will likely uh, uh, determine whether it feels like a Zelda game or not. Yeah. Wow. We are. I'm extremely. I can't remember getting as excited for a Zelda game for a very long time. Even thinking back to like Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess. Yep. Nothing since probably. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a link between worlds because mm-hmm. that, like that sort of a link to the past vibe, was very cool. And seeing that again for the 3DS uh, was pretty exciting. But yes. Breath of the Wild looks pretty incredible. So now we're going to go back to a series that we've already spoken about, but not a mainline title in the series. So we're going to dive straight into the next game and listen to some music. Jason is another game developed by Square for the PlayStation. It was originally released in 1997. It was uh, directed by Yasumi Matsuno and uh, produced by Sakaguchi-san himself as well. It's not a mainline series uh, game. It's a sort of spin-off in the series, but has become its own very, very well-respected title. It's loved by so many. It's actually featured on this podcast before. Someone has chosen it previously. I believe it was Greg Kasavin who chose this game as well. Mm -hmm. So you're in good company there. Uh, It's Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah, that game holds a special place in my heart. It always has. uh, I have it on my phone (laughs) and replay it every once in a while. (laughs) I'm there. Um, Yeah, that game is really... uh, It's got anything everything you might want in <laughs> in an rpg it's got an incredible story um with lots of characters with interesting motivations and and ideas and themes and then it's also got this incredible gameplay system where you build this army and uh kind of fight battles in this grid-based strategy style um and there's so much customization you can do and so many different things you can try out uh, in order to break the game and play the game in unique ways. Um, people have created challenges for themselves where they all uh, pick 
I mean, the way it works is you have this party of characters and each of them has like a Final Fantasy style class, like Black yeah. Mage or White Mage or Dragoon or whatever. And um, they kind of battle on this grid where everyone gets turns and there's a specific turn order and your characters can attack the enemy or move around the battlefield or cast spells or whatever. Um, it's uh, the I, it's sort of like Fire Emblem. For people who haven't played Tactics or heard of it, it's sort of Fire Emblem-y, but not really. Uh. Um it's very different. Uh, I don't it's know. What's it's, a... it's essentially just a strategy RPG. It like it's hard to compare it to Ogre Fire Battle is the best comparison. Or Tactics yeah, Ogre. Yeah, Tactics Ogre is definitely the uh, closest comparison. And the character designer who created the characters for Ogre Battle did the same for Final Fantasy Tactics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a phenomenal game. People have figured out all sorts of ways for breaking it um, and. Uh, uh, challenging themselves like on game facts if you go on there there are all sorts of guides to like doing uh everything playing the entire game with just one class or like playing the entire game with a themed party based on characters from other games <laughs> um and there's all sorts of cool stuff you can do in order to keep playing that game over and over again i don't think i'll ever get sick of final fantasy tactics it's one of those games i can revisit um over and over again which is kind of the theme for the next couple of games as well is there games that i can play over and over again on this island that we're stuck on when i'm not busy hanging out with my animal crossing <laughs> buddies um and yeah it's just a, a perfect strategy game so this is definitely leaning towards more being able to just replay forever n- never getting bored trying different things all the time giving yourself different challenges Mm-hmm. It's a good idea. Good yeah, idea. although this also happens to be a game where the story is incredible as well, so it kind of uh, hits both check marks of like uh, the infinite replayability and an emotionally affecting game. That's what that I was going to ask you next. What did you think of the story? Because uh, when Greg spoke about it, he said that one of the great, one of the best things about Final Fantasy Tactics, aside from the excellent gameplay, was that. The story was almost one of his most affecting story when he was younger. He he just I think I think he was he reviewed this game and he just couldn't it, it affected him so much he couldn't like write the review for a few days. He had to sort of sit down and really process what had happened, mm-hmm. even though it sort of has this like chibi look to it almost <laughs> and all these kind of things. It's a very impactful story. Yeah, it's very much inspired by like War of the Roses and um, ancient history. It's also kind of Game of Thronesy. Um, it's uh this this uh uh epic large scale narrative that unfolds over i think the whole game takes place over at least the course of a year or at least a few months um and it tells a story about battling nations and forces that all are constantly betraying one another and uh doing things selfishly and there's a whole evil church involved that's uh trying to fuck with everyone and and summon <laughs> summon evil demons and uh but mostly it's about humans and how they plot and conspire and act in their own self-interest um like Suikoden 2, the the most interesting part of the story is about two boys who are best friends and become rivals and uh, kind of the relationship between those two characters and how they act. And Delita in Final Fantasy Tactics is actually a lot like Joey in, in Suikoden 2. Um, 
and which which is funny to think about because they're, they're both kind of the known as the best RPG stories. I guess more yeah. more games should should make characters like that or like these interesting <laughs> like rival best friend dudes. Um, I think everyone sort of enjoys the best friends turn rivals Naruto Sasuke gonna mm-hmm. kill each other type archetypes that seem to be quite popular in stuff like this yeah um, yeah but yeah I you mean, are right it, it it works really well it's easy to to uh get at people's emotions when you have these characters and these villains and rivals who are more complicated than just like hey i want to go destroy the world now because i'm angry about <laughs> things um, well kefka let's not kefka's kefka's still great <laughs> yeah that's true that's true kefka's not complicated at all but he's still no. a fantastic <laughs> villain <laughs> he's, um, he, he's just the japanese joker that that's what he is <laughs> yeah that's true he's just he's just evil <laughs> i think kefka's kefka's so successful because he succeeds at what he's trying to do yeah. i think that's the reason that that villain works so well but yeah but with the, with more grounded stories i think uh uh this this kind of archetype really works really well it, it's this incredible thing and um final fight tactics has gone on to create some some more games in the series but most notably came uh sort of grew to become vagrant story and mm-hmm. the characters in that and the design in the world um did you play vagrant story how did you sort of feel about vagrant story i i played a little bit of it i haven't completed it um i i don't i i mean it's definitely it's directed by the same people and um it has a a lot of that tactics feel but i don't think it's really and maybe i i mean it's in it might be inspired by toxic tactics in the same sense that uh it was inspired i mean because it was inspired by matsuno san's uh yeah. previous games but it doesn't really feel like another tactics game to me no um it doesn't have not the like same. uh like War of the Lions, which is a yeah. game that released for the PSP. Mm-hmm. So, well, so that's actually a remake of Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there were some sequels uh, for the Game Boy Advance, and then the DS called Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, and then uh, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance Two. And those games took the combat system, and they're both good games, especially Two. Two is really good, and the combat system is really interesting. And they did a lot of changes to class the class system, and did some interesting things there. But in terms of story, those are both more lighthearted stories, and they don't have the same kind of epic feel as Matsuno's. Mm. Matsuno wasn't involved with those games. So they don't have the same kind of feel. Um, one game that's also inspired by that is Final Fantasy XII, which is also another Matsuno creation. Uh, is is very uh, uh, it's set in the same uh, world of evilist is what they call it. Um, yeah, and it's, the art the art style is very distinctly Final Fantasy Tactics inspired. Yeah, that sort of slender human beings, very uh, soft faces, very. I don't know, very almost European looking. Yes, yes. And then so the sad thing is that so in like 2013, Mitsuno uh, announced that he was doing this Kickstarter called Unsung Story with with this company called Playdeck. And it was supposed to be this successor to Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, and so I was really hyped about that. I wrote about it in Kotaku a couple of times. And since then, Playdeck has kind of fucked everyone over and, and like just totally d- dropped the ball and that kickstarter is just a disaster he they stopped working on it they still it's still not really clear if they're actually working on it um nobody's gotten refunds i i backed that game and still haven't gotten a refund and that has really uh uh soured me on kickstarter in general even though kickstarter is a really cool thing uh backing that project is one of my big regrets and telling people to back it because it's really a, a disaster 
unfortunately. It, it has done. It was what? It was last year, I think, that it sort of just all turned a little bit. Yeah. Well, there was like no news for a while or something. And yeah. Then just nothing they just happened. stopped updating people and they kept screwing people over and like, like promising to uh, post regular updates and then just not doing it. And it was just whole, the whole thing was just a mess. It's, it's too bad. Definitely one of the Hopefully. worst Kickstarters in in history. <laughs> so before that, he was working on Tower Battle, I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah. with like with Sakaguchi, yeah, with Sakaguchi. Um, where where does he sort of go from here if he can? I don't know. That's go a good back. Question. Um, I don't know if he's announced anything uh, recently. I don't think so. Well, with Final Fantasy twelve obviously being remade for the playstation 4 and, and uh, stuff like that there is this uh, that maybe might renew some interest in the sort of style of games that he had, was like a producer on and that kind of thing maybe he can come back into the sort of limelight a i hope bit. so what i think is that if final fantasy 15 is a big success for square they might start greenlining a lot of other interesting projects and hopefully one of those would be a, a new final fantasy tactics game um but that might just maybe, be a pipe yeah. dream uh, one of the one of the more recent games he worked on that I know of is the Crimson Shroud game. Yeah, uh, for the 3DS, which I thought was really good. It was part of that sort of, it was like a compilation of various designers creating games for, like the it was I forget what it was called. It was like the Guild series or something. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, that kind of like D and D style. Uh, uh, yeah, game. It wasn't my favorite thing in the world, but yeah, it was really it did some interesting things hopefully we can sort of maybe see that series maybe get sort of at least something in the future one day one day fingers crossed we've seen uh obviously virtual console releases of final fantasy tactics for the game boy advance um but obviously nothing like that and you have it on your phone so <laughs> at least you still have a little piece of it with you that's true <laughs> it's it's very easy to play uh in modern on modern systems so that's a good thing and strategy RPGs in general seem to be like all the rage. We've got XCOM. We have the Fire Emblem series is doing extremely well. Yep. Um, so maybe, maybe Square. Come on, come, come on, on, guys. Get your shit together. Come on, guys. You're doing, you're doing some, you're doing some good stuff recently. So come on, Square. Come yeah, on. you can do it. Do it. You can do it. Well, we're gonna move on from uh, sort of well, very similar sort of tactics game a game i've not played before um so we're going to listen to some music from this next game and we're going to go straight into the penultimate gaming that you're going to be taking with you So, 
The second to last game on your list, Jason, is a game developed by the very famous and lovely man that is Sid Meier. It's uh, not Civilization. It's not any of his sort of famous series that you might be thinking of. It's a game that he designed with Microprose back before Firaxis and back before he's... Well, he put his name on the box for this one as well. But this was very early on. It was released for PC in 1994. Well, MOS-DOS back in the day. It's a turn-based strategy game called Sid Meier's Colonization. Mm -hmm. Jason, why are Um, you taking Colonization with you? This sort of, uh, I don't know, not talked about game. I've never played it. So, um, well, so first of all, the the bulk of the credit for colonization actually belongs to Brian Reynolds, who is this guy, who was the main designer on that. Um, he also designed Civ Two and uh, Alpha Centauri and a couple other games uh, for those. Sid Meier had his hands in everything, but uh, he would have Sid Meier had proteges like Reynolds and a couple other people who were kind of the lead okay. designers on those games. Um, okay. So yeah, so Colonization, it's a really interesting game. It's one of those games that I have grown attached to because I played it so much when I was little and have just like like uh, uh, it, the rules have internalized all the rules and all the weird glitches and interesting things about it. The core concept is it's kind of like Civilization in that it's a 4x strategy game, which just means that you're looking at a bunch of tiles and you have to build uh, uh, your own settlements and uh, make a lot of decisions about exploring and combat and fighting and negotiating and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but it's set in uh, America in the 17th century, uh, where you are discovering America and you play as one of four European nations that goes out and tries to explore America. So you start the game with like a couple of colonists and you grow a city and then you send your ships back to uh, the old world, to Europe, to get new colonists. And there's this just like constant cycle of like you are managing all these things where you have to make smart decisions about managing your colonies and resources and uh, shipping goods around back to Europe and selling stuff and making money while you're also exploring and like running into Native Americans you can decide whether you want to live peacefully with the Native Americans or just kill them all Um, you can decide whether (laughs) to uh, live peacefully with your other European counterparts or try to kill them all too Um, and it gets really challenging and really interesting and because of the way the game is designed you can keep playing it over and over again and there are a lot of interesting things you could do Um, there's some jankiness to it because it's an old game and there's some bugs and stuff like that. Uh, but it's still really fun and I still fairly often pick it up and we'll just like randomly play through a game for a couple hours of colonization. Um, it's just one of those, I think everyone who likes those types of games has one or two that they just keep coming back to and, and yeah. that it's their particular favorites. Uh, and colonization is that for me just because that's what the one that I played the most as a kid over Civilization 1 and 2 and uh, the other games like that. So that was always my favorite. Am I wrong in thinking that there was a remake of this game? Yeah, there was. Um, I don't think it's as good, or at least it's not as good for me, because one of the reasons I like the original one so much is because it's so familiar to me, and so playing the the new remake and looking at all the changes they've made is kind of, like, weird. Um, and I don't know. There's something about that game that, because I've spent so many hours in it over the past two decades um, and just like memorized everything and internalized all the different 
quirks it has and yeah weird bugs it has where like if you move one ship over another sometimes they'll switch passengers for some reason um, <laughs> and uh yeah it's it's uh it's the the remake i you, didn't think i so- actually played it but i didn't think i would care you sort of get used to that jankiness um and that is uh, that is a part of the charm <laughs> with old games, and um, and then with remakes, it sort of loses maybe that personality or yeah. that that touch that you have that has like an emotional connection with you. Um, I believe the the remake was made with this this was it the Civ Four engine? I think it was it was before Civ Five. Yeah, I think you um, might be right. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, I, the, the remake. I. I it's not just the jankiness it's also just the the aesthetics of the old one it's just like so much what i'm used to it's one of those uh uh cases where like i'm so used to one thing that i wouldn't even want to bother trying the the remake yeah um but yeah i i would be more interested in seeing them try to make another one than a remake of the first one um and just like expand it in some some new ways and new mechanics and stuff like that so if there was going to uh, if there was going to be a remake okay so we are now Sid Meier and uh, <laughs> was it Brian Brian Johnson Brian Brian, uh, Brian Reynolds. Reynolds Brian Reynolds yeah so we are now Sid Meier and Brian Reynolds obviously Civilization is Civilization 6 is coming out and Civilization is this huge brand yeah. new spanking series that is very famous and stuff and they have the uh, space game uh, I figure is it after earth or beyond earth what, yeah beyond earth yes um th- that did pretty well uh, was received okay but colonization obviously is a very it's a very specific thing to america like europeans coming over and mm-hmm. conquering america how can we make this fresh and new and uh, and different um, what 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 would like a like a second game be about that wouldn't be too much like Civ. Yeah, to I don't know. I think be appealing. I think if 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 I were put in charge and told go make a sequel, I think I would. Um, it would be very similar to the first one, except expanded more. There would be more European countries to choose from. More okay. Uh, uh, areas like a bigger country, like the, instead of um, being as kind of the the scale that it's at now where it's you can see the tiles looking one certain way it might be zoomed in a little bit more so the maps can be bigger um and you can do a lot more uh maybe the tiles would be expanded colonies colony size could be expanded and just like adding more stuff to it more uh types of buildings and colonies more resources to to get um but actually so you can get the uh the original game on GOG on goodoldgames.com and uh, it's still it's still an interesting game that that might be worth people's time to check out. I don't know if it's as good if you don't have that kind of nostalgia and familiarity that I do, but um, yeah. it's definitely worth checking out. It, uh, it is a time of very... <laughs> games when they were very, very janky yes. and sort of almost this bridging experience between 90s PC games that really defined what the future of video games were going to be like and uh-huh. this sort of learning experience. Yeah, it's not broken, don't get me wrong. There's just a couple mm. of weird quirks about it. It's still very much playable and very, yeah. very... Because uh, it, it came after Civilization, the first one. Yes. So 
they'd already learned a lot with that game yes. before doing this one. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like this is, yeah, it, it's definitely very playable today. Like, it, don't get me wrong. It's not like a game where you open it up and everything's broken and nothing works. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not like uh, the new SimCity or whatever, <laughs> but it's just a couple of weird quirks that you have to kind of get to know when you're playing. And um, there are some interesting tricks, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you could speak to Sid and ask him if they're, if Firaxis have the license, I'm probably sure they do because most of micro pro stuff switched over to mm-hmm. like 2k and Firaxis. So maybe you can ask him for like an iPhone version, like a, <laughs> like a neat little iPhone version for you to play yeah. alongside Final Fantasy Tactics. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> you can hope <laughs> I, I don't mind playing it on my computer though it's like it's really easy to run so you can, i can run it on oh, my yeah? laptop and, uh, and you don't have to run it in like a virtual box or anything no like no if you get it now. on guy you can actually just play it straight up oh wow that's really cool mm-hmm. oh I, I might check it out then yeah it's worth it's interesting it's, it's i'm a huge fan game. of the civilization games and and the, the idea of sort of conquering yeah. which is always oh, what i try to do in civilization yeah is yeah oh wow Maybe this weekend is sorted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me know. I'm curious to hear what you think. I will do. (laughs) Well, we're going to move into your final game now, uh, which is a... Uh, another sort of pseudo strategy game but uh, a lot more competitive and real time and is this huge juggernaut of a game as well so we're going to listen to some music from the final game and then we're going to talk about jason's final game So the final game on your list that you're going to be taking to the very cute and wonderful world of Animal Crossing with you, Jason, (laughs) is a juggernaut of a game that has appeared on people's lists quite a few times in recent episodes. Um, It was chosen uh, by Per Schneider of IGN a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's Blizzard's huge... Esport, the Korean fantasy, like just awesome strategy game that is the second in the main series. It's had th- two expansions since its release. It's the game that features the Zerg, the Terrans, and the Protoss. It's StarCraft II Wings of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Jason, please tell me why the final game you're taking with you to the wonderful world of Animal Crossing today is StarCraft II. Yeah, so StarCraft, um, I think. So so in 2010, when that game came out, I got really into it and was like, would spend every single morning before work, I would like be watching like uh, videos by this guy, Day9, who would make all these uh, lesson te- yeah. like, teaching videos on StarCraft 2. And I yeah. was really into playing it competitively and, and got like decent at that game. Um, it's one of those games where you, to be good at it, uh, the multiplayer at least, you have to 
be playing it constantly. Uh, so it's not mm-hmm. something I really have time for these days. But if I were on a deserted island, I would totally be down to be playing it constantly. <laughs> I assume there's internet on this deserted yes. island. Yes. And we can play it. So online. the rules in general for the internet are that you can play games that ha- uh, require an internet connection, but you're not able to use like. Uh, like communication functions other than like emotes or stuff mm-hmm. like got it so like if you think of overwatch like you know the scroll wheel of emotes that you have got it like that would be like the extent of what you're able to do so like in starcraft you wouldn't be able to use the chat function you could probably maybe have a, a macro to gg or bg depending on how your games are going uh-huh. but that's it so if you can deal with that then that's fine yeah, well, so one of the reasons I didn't pick Destiny, which might have been on my list otherwise, is because I figured that we I couldn't talk to people, and you kind of need to talk to people online yeah, while you're playing yeah. that game. Um, okay. But yeah, so StarCraft II, uh, I would be playing that constantly. I It's one of those games where like I'm a very competitive person, so I like playing and beating people online and getting really good <laughs> at it. And it's one, of the, it's one of those things where like I would still be playing it all the time if I didn't have so many other games to play for work. Um, and I mean, also, I'm interested in a lot of different types of games, and I like having a diversity of things to play. Um, but if I were in a world where I could only play a few games, StarCraft II would definitely be one of them, because I would just keep playing that over and over again and competing and trying to get better and, and kick people's asses online. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really fun. I really enjoy all the the strategy and decision-making and macro and micro uh, choices that you have to make and like learning different strategies. And yeah, that's sort of... Uh, a a core loop that is really enjoyable and then on top of that there are also uh there's a map editor so i can create my own maps or play other people's maps and there's a lot of really cool stuff that people uh do with that uh actually the whole idea of mobas came from the original starcraft a game uh, a mod called aeon of strife that was basically the original moba um so you can create entire genres of games in the starcraft map editor I was going to say, so what is it specifically about StarCraft then on, on a competitive basis uh, other than like, you know, MOBAs like Dota or League of Legends or any of those really popular, uh, very similar, uh, like competitive esports? Yeah, StarCraft's a lot better. It's a lot more uh, complicated and interesting and you have to make a lot better, more interesting decisions than MOBA games. MOBA games are kind of like, uh, I don't know, I find them boring. I don't like have only controlling one character for a game like that i prefer building up an army and having to make split second decisions and manage resources and think about expansions and when to attack and when not to attack and there's so much more going on in starcraft than there is in a moba and so much more to think about and and be able to do mobas are kind of like light versions of rts's where i mean don't get me wrong (laughs) they have their own depth and strategy but i prefer uh the more complicated stuff for various reasons have you managed to be able to play? Obviously, you're extremely busy and you have a lot of games to play. Uh, but uh, it's seen, you know, two expansions: Heart of the Swarm and Legacy of the Void. Have mm-hmm. you had chance to play both of those? Or oh yeah, I, I actually I reviewed them both for Kotaku. Um, so, oh okay. yeah, so I played through all of that stuff. Uh, and yeah, the story itself, I I really enjoy the campaigns. Um, because they add a lot of interesting mechanics to the formula and do a lot of really cool things. Uh, And I like the characters, but the stories themselves are kind of like typical Blizzard, like this is the good side and this is the evil side. And (laughs) I've kind of lost a lot of the nuance that the original StarCraft had, which is too bad, but uh, the campaigns are really cool. 
So let's talk about your competitive history with StarCraft then. Um, obviously, StarCraft was at one point the biggest esport. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot in, in due part to Korea and how much Korea latched onto StarCraft. Since then, since 2010, we've seen this huge rise in games like League of Legends and Dota and most recently games like Hearthstone as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so StarCraft has sort of maybe diminished in its esports popularity. Yes. But for a very long time, it was one of the most competitive games out there. Tell me about like your sort of competitive history. How well did you do on the ladder? What like what were you going through? Did you have like a build order list and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, so um, when I was playing, so this was like 2010. So the original StarCraft, I, w- I never played online. Um, when that first came out, I was too young to really understand like the the nuance and the the intricacies and i kind of preferred just like fucking around with the ai and like putting on cheats and stuff like that um (laughs) but then when starcraft 2 came out i played the beta and i got really into it and i started watching all these videos of people playing online and like day nine as i mentioned before and like i would watch a lot of stuff from like um the big starcraft casters and uh followed build orders and figured out like the best strategy for myself i wouldn't say i was like like competitive by any means but i did get into uh the diamond league uh which is the highest one besides really master good. so yeah really because good. i was playing a lot and, and got really into it um but yeah so i've always been kind of uh had an efficiency for rts games and enjoyed playing them um uh, uh since like the warcraft two days warcraft and even warcraft one but warcraft two more so um i played a lot of and like uh the command and conquer games back in the day yeah i played a lot of that stuff so yeah so what? so it was it was fun nowadays i would be in like bronze league um <laughs> i saw like a couple of instincts but i don't know anything about the current like meta game or yeah current build orders and stuff like that <laughs> do you have like i know a lot of people who play starcraft i i got there was a time in university when i got incredibly into starcraft 2 and mm-hmm. i was i was doing the same i was watching day nine's daily videos yep. and he was reviewing like vods of like korean players and all that kind of stuff got really heavily into that and i was trying to do it i know a lot of starcraft players have like a die hard race that they will they will never diverge from they always stick with that one race do you uh, did you play all the races or did you have a favorite that you played a lot of um terran was always my favorite um so i usually played terran i would dabble with protoss but i hated playing zerg i still kind of hate playing <laughs> zerg um, something about zerg is just uh, not appealing to me something about having no. to deal with the larva is really unappealing to me um, okay. I pref- no Zerg rushes. For no, you. I prefer having smaller, more powerful armies and like massive uh, uh, armies of Zerglings and Roaches and stuff. So that's just my style is more Terran and Protoss. <laughs> Have you had the chance to speak to Day Nine about StarCraft in any way, um, reigniting that sort of spirit of the old competitive days? I have not. I don't know. So is he just totally not into StarCraft anymore? Is that the? I don't know. He does a lot of like magic and Hearthstone now. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, I, I do, I did like those dailies, but I, I just didn't have the time to keep watching them once I had, uh, uh started at Kanchaku and and was no longer, um, living the freelance life where I could wake up in the morning and watch <laughs> watch a StarCraft video before I started working. Um, so obviously, uh, now, uh, <laughs> Blizzard have this huge new, I, I imagine is going to just take off in terms of esports as well as being a fantastic game in Overwatch. Yep. Um, and that's probably going to be a lot of their focus, especially with the new World of Warcraft expansion coming out as well. Do you think we're going to see like a Starcraft three in the future? 
Uh, do you hope that one will come, or are you just sort of happy maybe now and again playing StarCraft Two games? I don't know. I think it depends. I think right now they're looking at StarCraft Two as kind of a servicey game where they're they're releasing like this. Uh, to this year they're doing uh, expansion these kind of mission packs based around Nova, a character from StarCraft. They're called Nova Covert Ops. Yeah, there was. It was an announcement yesterday, wasn't there? Yeah, they I just think. announced a release date for the second one. Um, I've been okay. kind of, I'm kind of waiting for all of them to be out because I don't like the whole piecemeal thing. Um, okay. I want to play them all at once. It's but it's three <laughs> packs of three missions each, um, and that's what they're doing this year. They're selling those, and then I would guess that the game's going to go free to play at some point um, in the near future. Um, and then I think they'll wait and see. I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I, they do have a team that's just devoted to StarCraft right now. And that team is not, I mean, presumably once StarCraft is done, whatever that looks like, that team will want to make a new game rather than like merging with the Overwatch team or merging with the World of Warcraft yeah. team. Yeah. So I can imagine of- those. I can imagine those guys sat on the side, uh, obviously having known video game development, f- peeking over the shoulders, looking at the guys making Overwatch or yeah. the new World of Warcraft expansion, like, when are we going to get to make like a new StarCraft? Or when are we going to get to do something <laughs> Yeah, new? I don't know. I would love to see them do a new Warcraft, actually. I think that would be the interesting move, like a oh, Warcraft yeah. 4. But I don't know if they could do that. Um, or like even something totally new, like a new IP that's uh, an RTS. Um the other interesting angle of that is that Heroes of the Storm, Blizzard's MOBA, I don't think is doing super well. Uh, I think it's gotten drowned out by not only their other games, but Dota and League of Legends. Um, and Which so, is a shame um, because the, the, I really enjoyed playing that game. I thought that was a really uh, in interesting MOBA yeah, that took a lot of the very cliche concepts of MOBAs and sort of threw them out the window and tried to do something new. Um, but so that's kind of a shame to hear that. Right? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if it's uh, what their plan is for that um, and keeping it going and keeping people interested. They definitely still have people working on it. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what they wind up doing. I'm, I, I really, I don't think even they know what their plan is. <laughs> well, f- hopefully... Um, for your sake, they do make a StarCraft 3 or, so, or something that can maybe you can have some time on your deserted island. Maybe I'll, if they release a StarCraft 3, maybe I'll send it to you on, <laughs> in the world of Animal Crossing. I appreciate Crossing. it. I appreciate it. <laughs> and then you can get back on that ladder and get back to Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, we have come to the end of the show now, and it is time. Unfortunately, you are not going to go back and work at Kotaku. You are unfortunately going to be sent to the uh, the <laughs> the wonderful world of Animal Crossing to <laughs> to the town of New Leaf um, to play these games. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today about these games. Yeah, thanks, Liam. It was a lot of fun. No problem. Thank you so for before, me. oh, it's been a pleasure. So before I let you go today, there is one last question I have to ask you, and I ask every guest: if you were to choose one console to take with you so you've chosen the eight games that mean a lot to you and that you feel are gonna help you survive being pestered by these anthropomorphic human raccoon animal crossing animals Mm -hmm. for (laughs) for the rest of your days (laughs) if there was going to be one console you could take with you uh taking into uh consideration the back catalog of that console Mm -hmm. um what console would you take with you? You're not allowed to take PC. Oh, I was because, about to say PC. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to do that because you can emulate almost any console up to like the PlayStation 2 era. So that is not included. 
But if you could what take about PC controller? without emulation, so it's just PC games. I would allow a Steam box. Oh, that so would that. be the extent. That okay, so you that. would take a Steam box. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in a heartbeat because you can get like so many more like games for that are just on. Um, I mean, games that are across all the generations you can get on PC. It's got the biggest library of anything. Um, I assume you can play GOG games on a Steam box too, so I could get my my classic fix in as well. Um, but yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. That no oh. no comparison. As much as I like console gaming, and I'm not like a PC uh, uh, snob, and I do most of my gaming on PS4 these days or like handouts. Um, I think PC is has to be the answer there. Well, taking a Steam box with you then. Specifically, a Steam box. Yeah, I think I may Vita. Making, Vita might be a close, a close second, or a 3DS, just because I like th- handheld gaming so much. But yeah, okay. if I'm stuck on an island, I don't really need a portable system. So yeah, Steam box is the way to go. Okay, so I'll allow you a Steam box. There's got to be some limitation. I'm gonna, ch- I'm gonna make sure there is a. I'm gonna make sure this is okay. There are no dodgy emulations or anything you could potentially get around the rules with this Steam box, but I'm going to allow you the Steam box. So it is time to send you away. Jason, thank you so much for appearing. Please tell uh, the listeners how they can find you or what they should be checking out of yours and maybe some details about this book that you're writing as well. Sure. Um, so you can find me. The best place to follow me is on Twitter at Jason Schreier, J-S-O-N-S-E-H-R-E-I-E-R. Um, and also at kotaku.com, you'll find all of my work. Um the book is in very early stages, and it won't be published until uh, probably around September of 2017. So don't worry about that for now. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have another chance to talk about that. But the best way, if you're interested in that, and basically it's a book about game development and how games are made. Um, I'm going out to a bunch of different studios and talking to people and kind of telling a bunch of different stories about how hard it is to make video games and uh, the the stories behind each of these games the behind the scenes looks at how a lot of these uh games are made um and i'll be talking about that a lot more on twitter next year as we get closer to release um so if you're interested in that at all following me on twitter is the best option excellent so and also you can go to kotaku dot com and <laughs> you can yep. read kotaku as well <laughs> you can read jason's daily new stuff and also the superb excellent uh huge future like feature massive like articles that he does about various things um the one about video game crunch specifically uh people should read that 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 article meant a lot to me when i read it um considering i having gone through video game development it was (laughs) was a superb it was a superb article yeah you should definitely check out that uh it's a very good example of uh, how excellent jason's writing is so once again, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I'm sorry I have to cast you off to a deserted island Yeah, now. thank you for all the compliments. I'll, I'll be taking those all with me on the island as well. <laughs> the nice things you said. No, it's, it's been a pleasure. So once again, thank you for listening to The Final Games. Uh, thank you for joining me for the 26th episode. I hope you'll join me for the next one. If you want to find out more about the show, you can go on Twitter as well, at Final Games Show. You can also email the show at finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. A lot of people have been emailing recently, so if you'd like to, 
you can email me there. If you'd want to follow me on Twitter or see anything I talk about, which is mostly video games and Japan and all this sort of nonsense, you can follow me at LiamBME. Uh, we're on SoundCloud and we're also on iTunes. Please do the usual things that you do for podcasts, rate, review, follow, all that wonderful stuff. So thank you once again for joining me and I hope you'll join me next time. Goodbye. <laughs>